0: Uh, Today is Remembrance Day, and we're just going to take a minute, uh, well, it soon will be. Kids, yeah, okay, kids, go. I guess it's the junior high uh, crowds. Keep apart, stay distant, and uh, we'd appreciate that very much. Discovery kids as well, yeah, that's right. There we go. Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, Remembrance Day is on a Wednesday And we're just going to take a minute today um, to, to recognize that reality And to remember and give thanks For those who have uh, laid down their lives For us in previous wars Those who are serving still uh, on our behalf So I'm going to ask you to rise And we'll have a minute of silence After which I will uh, conclude with a prayer So let's, let's do that now If you wish to pray and, and give thanks to God Please do that If you wish just to be silent and remember well those who have uh, uh, suffered and, and, and uh, given up, given the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf, please do that as well. So let's take that minute now. Lord God, we take this time today to remember. Lord, we're called to remember, um, especially once a year, to think and to be thankful for those who have laid down their lives on our behalf. Lord, we are the country we are today. We have the freedom that we have as a people. We have the freedom to worship, which we have, simply because men and women were willing to sacrifice and even at times give the ultimate sacrifice of their lives for us. And Lord, for those sacrifices, uh, we say thank you. For that willingness, for that determination and that commitment, we say thank you. Lord, there are people serving in the armed forces of Canada at home and abroad around the world today, and many of them are sacrificing time with family and uh, convenience, if you would, in order to serve, sometimes peacekeeping, Lord, sometimes in dangerous scenarios, Sometimes simply preparing for what might happen. And our God, for those people, we also give you thanks because uh, of their willingness and their readiness to sacrifice. God, we are a blessed people in this land. We have a a, a heritage that is rooted in, in you and ultimately in the word of God. And um, for this, this nation, we give you thanks. And for the people who have been willing to, uh, to do what they have done. We give you thanks. Father, we can't think of the ultimate sacrifice without thinking of Jesus and the life he gave uh, on the cross. Lord, there is our, our model, our invitation, for we too are called to lay down our lives for you, um, that the world might be blessed, that the world might know Christ, that the world uh, might know his goodness. So, Lord, on this day, we remember an incredibly important principle, giving thanks for those who have done it on our behalf in war, uh, giving thanks for those who are doing it now, recognizing, Lord, that we too are called in our own way uh, to lay down our lives for you. This we do, our God, as part of our worship this morning. And these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I'm going to ask you this morning whether you share at all with me in in a particular way. And that way is that I often, when I look at our world, the world in which we live, as a follower of Jesus, I struggle. I look and I see the fact, the reality of of a people who has turned away, essentially, from God, uh, disregarded His word and His will, and in many ways... Uh, we have treated him as if he were not. An insignificance. Actually, as if God was nothing. I'm going to give you some examples. There are probably dozens of examples that I could give you if if, uh, we had time. But here are some to just make a point. You know, I love watching the Leafs and I love watching the Blue Jays. Less so the Blue Jays, but I love watching the Raptors too. But you know what I struggle with? I've mentioned this to you before. I struggle with the fact that athletes today get millions and millions and millions of dollars to play hockey, baseball, or basketball. While there are children in our own country and around the world who don't have enough to eat and they don't have water or clean water. And there are children who actually are dying because of those realities. And I look at that reality and I just think there's something wrong with our values. It's just not right. How about this one? Um, We've heard, I guess, uh, in recent year or two, I suppose, of eight- and nine-year-olds who are struggling with gender dysphoria, it's now called. The idea that little children feel that they have uh, been born in the wrong body, if you would. If they're a boy, they might feel like a girl. If they're a girl, they might feel like a boy. But here's what I struggle with, that we are now giving eight- and nine-year-old children hormones to begin their transition to becoming if you would, the opposite sex. I struggle with that. I struggle with advertising. You ever struggle with advertising? I hope you look at this reality, I hope you look at your world and you're observant in this way, but I look at advertising which bombards our lives, television and social media and on the radio, whatever media we might access. And over and over and over again, what we're told is to be materialists. We're told that, that, that having things is the best, that having things will make us happy. And we're called to be consumers. It's what we're told our identity is. And the more you consume, the better off you will be. And we, it leads us to a discontentedness that God doesn't want for us. And it leads us actually to an envy, which God doesn't want for our lives, wishing we had what others had. Here's another one. I struggle with euthanasia. And I've told you that I need to address that at some point with you, but right now the laws are being changed based on the Supreme Court ruling. And we as a country are embracing more and more and more the idea, we have embraced the idea that people might take their own lives and this is done, I have to suggest to you, um, not recognizing the biblical truth that it is God who gives life and it is God who takes it away. That the lives that we live are not our own, literally, they belong to God. He is the creator. But the practice has, has become now part of, our, part of law, part of our country's experience. Again, the reality of a disregard of God and his word. I struggle probably more because of my age. I wonder why the young people struggle to the same degree, but, you know, I grew up, and I think this is part of the reason behind my struggle in the 60s and 70s, a long time ago now, right? But in that day, there was this agreement, if you would, an alignment between the government, the state, and the church. It was put in place in the year 413 AD when the Roman emperor became a Christian, and all of a sudden, the state religion was Christian, and it was this partnership that formed where the church and the state governed the land in the middle of the um, last millennia, it actually became that the church was more powerful than the state. But there was this partnership that worked. And as I grew up in those early years, there was a recognition that the Bible determined what was right and wrong. There was this recognition that there was a morality there that at times was entrenched in law because of that partnership. Now, I'm not saying this was a good thing. That's another discussion. But what I am saying today is that everything has changed in my lifetime so that that partnership no longer exists. The church and its voice has been marginalized. Uh, The government and the people of Canada don't care for the most part what we say anymore. And the country is going in a different direction in many ways than what God would desire. Now I tell you this because we're going to study a book in which we will find instruction for the people of God who live in a world where God is not honored, where literally, if you would, God has been set aside. Um, It's the book of Daniel. It's the story of a young man who, probably at the age of 17 or so, was taken from uh, Israel with his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they find themselves living in what the Bible refers to as exile. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, which was well to the east of Israel, uh, he ruled this nation, which was a superpower. And Israel was a vassal state of Babylon. And that was the case with Israel in most of its existence. There were always greater powers which taxed it and which uh, had power over it. And, you know, the last superpower being that of Rome in Jesus' day. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, after the Israelites had rebelled three times, decided enough was enough, and he came with his powerful army, and he wiped out the armies of Israel, and he destroyed Jerusalem and much of the temple. He overwhelmed Israel, if you would, and that was about 600 BC, give or take. And because of that victory, he took much of Israel's wealth back to Babylon. And he took the best and the brightest of the young people, where they would live in Babylon and where they would serve the court of the king, become part of the government of that land. These people. Daniel and his friends and others among them, some of them strove to live for God. They strove to live in obedience to his word as they lived in a foreign land. Different gods, different king, different morality, different values, different practices. And we are going to receive instruction from them about how to live in exile because as I'm going to suggest to you in a minute, I think we're there now. But let me read to you Daniel chapter 1. And um, we'll learn from these, this text this morning, one uh, verses 1 to 4. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put, the treasure, put uh, in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And of course, Daniel and his friends were some of those young men from the court of of, of Israel and, and from the nobility. But I am bringing this to you. I'm suggesting this reality to you today that we are living in exile. It's a different sort of exile in a sense because we haven't been taken away from anything. We haven't, we haven't been carted off from our homeland in order to, to serve a foreign king in a foreign land. Rather, it is our land which has changed, as I have suggested to you. We are living in, in, in a land which was once governed for hundreds and thousands of years, as I've suggested, by the, the word of God and, and the belief in God. Um, but in a sense, we've been conquered by the enemies of our soul. Have you thought about that? How the church, can I put it this way, has failed in its task? There's been great decline in the church, in the West especially. And we, in Canada and in the West, have been marginalized. It means we've been pushed to the margins of our society. And our voice has been lost. Our influence is no more. So that we ourselves are now living, if you would, in a foreign land, but we're doing so as the people of God. In this land, there's a different king, and there are different gods, and there's a different morality, and there are different values, and there are different practices. God is just not honored or considered anymore. And I want to suggest uh, that this exile, and I'm going to do this today, and I don't know if I'll do it otherwise, but because there are other exiles, there are many exiles, if you think of it uh, in Scripture. But another exile that, if you would, parallels the experience of Daniel and his friends was the first century church. That church grew up, have, grew up discovering God in Christ. They discovered that Christ was God And they wanted to follow after him. They wanted to make him their king. They wanted to live as he lived, think as he thought, desire as he desired. They wanted to honor God in their lives. We're going to go to the the text, and we're going to learn from Daniel and the exile over the next four to five weeks. We're going to learn this morning a little bit from the first century church. But what is it that we can learn? Number one, this is so simple, but it's so important, we are not at home. Have you ever thought that? We are not at home, as Daniel and his friends were not at home. Um, we have to realize that because of our faith, we are different. We are different. And that we don't belong, can I put it that way? We are God's people living in the midst of a Godless culture. Our citizenship, according to Peter, is in heaven. Our allegiance, it's making the same point is to a different king, and his name is Jesus. And we have got to recognize that, that, that this makes us different. We, we seek to follow after Jesus, his will, his way, his values, his morality, his practices. They are to guide our lives more than those of our culture. And that does make us different. We are not, according to Romans 12, to conform to the pattern of this world, but have our minds transformed through Scripture, so that we know the good, perfect, and pleasing will of God. And it's different than those who surround us. And one last point to quote the First Peter from an old translation, we are called to be a peculiar people. <laughs> we are to stand out as different because of our allegiance to Jesus. You know, I thought of a song um, from, I think literally it's from my childhood, and that's a long time ago now. And I either learned this in Colsight, Scotland, or Midland, Ontario, I'm not sure which. And I used to think it was a, a spiritual, but I looked, looked it up and it's not actually a spiritual. It came out of bluegrass music in the 1930s. So I don't have any bluegrass fans here. And some of you might rec- rep, um, recognize this. I bet you you're older than 50, if you do. Or maybe 60, I don't know. But here are the words, and I want you to listen to the words of this song. I grew up with this in my head. <laughs> This world is not my own. I'm just a passing through. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckoned me from heaven's open door. Listen, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Isn't that powerful? How many know the song? Yeah, all the old folk. Oh, maybe one who's not so old. That's awesome. I think that's powerful, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore because things have changed. Now, that's why I struggle at times with the way the world is. The older I get, the more I mature in my faith, the more I see the world through through what's called a, a biblical worldview, through the eyes of God, can I put it that way? The more I recognize that I don't belong here and that my home is in heaven, and there's a longing for the day. So what, what we have to recognize, and it, and it grows right out of this text, to something that so makes this point, is the reality that, that we, we, are, we are living in a foreign land. And if we will be faithful to God, we're going to experience what these young men experienced. Sometimes it's really good, sometimes it's really bad, but we have got to learn to live in exile. And we are going to. Second point, as God's people in exile, we are not to fight and resist what is. Are you like me sometimes? You're tempted to fight and resist what is? I used to more than I do now. I've somewhat accepted it. It's a reality. But when this change was happening, and it probably culminated in the 1990s and into the the early 2000s, things would happen. And and as it did culminate, as it peaked, as it became incredibly obvious what was happening, I often was angry. You know, I would look at it and I would see that the nation was choosing things that were in direct violation to God and His law. But more than that, I would look at it and I I would think of it as an affront to God, an offense to God, what was happening in this land. But I want to tell you, my friends, we do not see anger in Daniel and his friends. It's just not there. What we see is an attitude that was respectful, and we see an attitude of cooperation as they worked within their new country, recognizing the authorities of that new country, the king and, and his uh, leadership. And as they did so as long as, as they would not violate the law of God, the word of God. Now, something in the text I think is really powerful in in this point. Verse 2, I repeat to you, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim into his Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Did you hear that? How did Israel end up in exile? The Lord delivered their king into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. If you were there that day, you'd think, oh, this this great king, this leader of the superpower, he is all-powerful. He is determining our course of, of life. He is... Tearing us out of our homeland and sending us to a foreign city and nation. But the word of God says that the Lord did it. And what's being communicated here is the reality that God allowed this. No, God actually chose this for his people. And as you, as you study the, the, this exile, you recognize, you see that, that God was using it in order to lead his people ultimately to a repentance, for they had slipped away themselves from faithfulness to God, particularly into idolatry, but into many other actions as well. And he was using repent, th- this, this exile to lead them to repentance and ultimate faithfulness 70 years later when they would return to their homeland as Isaiah would prophesy, as I, uh, Jeremiah would prophesy. The, the great prophets of that day. So, my friends, we have to recognize there's no place for anger, number one, because when the people of God are living in exile, it's because of God's choice. You know, I, I heard someone just recently say, you know, Christianity is on the decline toward extinction. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's declining in number, and sooner or later it will just be gone. It will be a thing of the past it's all gobbledygook that we shouldn't give any attention to. Do you, have you ever thought that? Don't think it. Because, number one, Christianity is booming in different places around this world. In Africa, I haven't heard recently, but I, I, I heard, read some years ago that over 100,000 people per day are being converted to Christ. And I assume that carries on. In India, it's similar in Asia. It is in the West, Europe and Canada North America, that the great decline has happened. Why? Could it be that the Lord has allowed this in order that we might be led to repentance as His people, that we might become the, the, the church on fire to accomplish the things that God wants accomplished in this world? Could it be that we are being led to repentance so that we can really call on the Lord again so that He might move in power? And I want to tell you, my friends. The reality is that there's no place for anger. There is a place for recognizing that God is doing something in the here and now. And our question has to be, how can we live for him? How can we honor him with humility and in love in order to accomplish the purposes which he has for us today? Third and related point. We have to live to bless the land that we find ourselves in. Um, this is exactly what Daniel and his friends did. They contributed significantly to Babylon and its power. They all rose to some level of prominence and significance, Daniel in particular at the end of his life. A very powerful man serving the king, seeking to bring goodness and blessing to the nation that they were in. The most referenced verse in this regard comes to us from um, Jeremiah, as I've mentioned, the Somewhat contemporary prophet of, of, uh, of Isaiah and those who prophesied about the exile in itself. And I'm going to read some verses from uh, Jeremiah today. I'm going to start from with verses Jeremiah 29. We're going to read from 4 to 7. Listen to this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Do you hear it again? Who carried them there? Whose purpose was it? Whose intention was it? Who did it? God did it. And this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I love that. I don't know whether you you love that or not, but I invite you to because God is about to speak not only to these people, but to this people here today. Let's carry on. God is saying, you know, as Daniel and his friends did, don't fight against what God has ordained. Don't resist the reality of where you find yourself. Key verse, seek the peace and prosperity of the city, the city being Babylon. We have to contribute in a good and a healthy way so that others might know the goodness and the blessing of God. You know, Jesus called this being salt and light, being a preservative in a culture being that which illuminates truth, the church. Jesus called it being yeast and dough, which produced what? A really tasty loaf of bread that would feed people. My friends, you know, we see this in Daniel and his friends. We're going to. Today I want to reference again this early church, this exile that was in existence that much parallels our own circumstance. These people were persecuted, as were Daniel and his friends. We'll discover that. These early church... Uh, the people of the early church were imprisoned and they were martyred. You know, they, they lost work without bearing the mark of the beast, you know, they, as they refused to acknowledge Caesar as God. Literally, Caesar believed himself to be God in that day, and these people would not bend their knee to an alternate God. But in that difficult, trying time, so often, what did the followers of Jesus do? They blessed people. You know, recently I was listening to a a podcast on COVID and the role of Christians within it. And, you know, they they began to call a pandemic what pandemic has historically been called. Do you know what it has historically been called? The plague. And the plague hit, you know, we have stories of it in, in London, in Europe at times, and it killed thousands and thousands of people. I just finished, by the way, reading a series of novels on Thomas Cromwell, who was the right-hand man of Henry VIII, for about eight years before he lost his head because he made Henry unhappy. And in that story repeatedly, over the course of three novels, three, three long books, uh, the plague would come to London. You know what Henry VIII would do? He would pick up his court and he would leave, and he would establish his court in another place in the country where it was safe. It's kind of like where we live, more or less. More or less. And he would wait till the the plague sort of played itself out in London and it was safe there, and then he would return. That's what people with means were able to do. You know what Christians have done for centuries and millennia when the plague strikes? They have stayed in the cities, and they have cared for the sick and for the dying. And at times they have gotten sick themselves, and at times they have died themselves through their loving action of servanthood. Afterwards, people would ask the question, why on earth didn't you just leave? Why didn't your loved one just take off? Why, why do that? And in that instance, non-believers would hear about the love of God for the sick and the dying, and they would hear about the call of Jesus to his people to serve and to be self-sacrificing even to the point of death so that others might know the love and the comfort and the grace of God. You see a powerful witness to Christ in the midst of the plague because people, people loved God. This happened in the first century. It was powerful, not just in the the Middle Ages and so forth. This happened. The early church did this. And I want to tell you the early church had this huge impact in the first century where it's estimated that 22 million people followed Christ before the year 100 or by the year 100 A.D. You know, the, sort of the pro, prototypical example which people refer to is, is that these early Christians made a difference in a culture where infanticide was practiced. Um, that's simply the practice of discarding unwanted children. In that day, boys were more valued than girls. So if you had enough girls and you didn't want any more, you'd leave the little girl in the street to die or in a ditch. Or if somehow those children were malformed or somehow unwell, well, it didn't matter. They were just little infants. Literally, it was a mentality until they survived the first five years or so. didn't matter. So the the, the, the deformed children would be left on the street to die. Christians would come along, followers of Jesus, and they would rescue those little ones. They would save them as they themselves had been saved by Christ. And they would bring them into their homes and they would love them and they would raise them as their own. And people would step back and they would look at this and say, why on earth would you do that? Why? And the people of Jesus would be able to explain that God loves these little ones. They are precious to him and thus they are precious to us. And, I, and, and we take care of them because of that fact. They're made in the image of God, and they are to be deeply valued, not discarded. And once again, the witness to Christ was powerful, because people could see the loving action, the servanthood, the, the sacrifice from the people of Jesus, which would cause them in the end to know about the reality of Christ, and many people came to Jesus because of it. See, my friends, what I'm saying, this is what we're called to an Exile. We are to be different. We are to be radically different. We're not to assume the thoughts and the practices of this culture which has left God. We are to hold on to being the people of Jesus. And we are to live for him. You know, this summer up at our family cottage, I spent a couple of weeks there. And um, usually it's a place of real quiet and very peaceful. Uh, A couple of things happened. Some yahoo across the bay was drilling a well every day, 14 days in a row except Sunday. You know, this drill bang, bang, bang into the Canadian Shield. And I'm going, give me a break, come on. But also, I hear this little child crying next door. They're relatively new people to the area, that is their permanent home. Uh, they're followers of Jesus, Mennonite folks. And I, and I would hear this crying. Now, their youngest, uh, I know, is probably 14 or 15 years old. And I'm thinking, like, if that's a surprise, that's a pretty late surprise, right? <laughs> a little baby crying. Um, but what I found out this fall when I was up again, I found out that those people had fostered two little kids. That little one, which I, whom I heard crying a lot, and an older brother. Um, and my first thought is, why on earth would they foster a child at their stage in life? You know, very often, you know, People do it because of income. You know? You're funded by the government in order to do so. These people have no financial needs. He's sort of inheriting a very successful business, I assume, from his dad, and they have means. And, and in the end of the day, I had to conclude, and when I have the opportunity, I will ask, but I, I have no other reason why those people would foster a child other than the fact of the love of God. To bring little ones into their home in order to raise them up and to bless them. What a parallel with the early church. Children, if you would, and I know it's not always the intention of birth parents, but if you would, they're discarded, and they need the love of God. They are precious in His sight. And those people, those people are living in exile in a beautiful way. You see, my friends, this is what we're called to. We call it building the kingdom of God now. <laughs> And as we do live and love and in sacrifice and in service, as we are different in this world, we will overcome the enemy who has overcome us. And the world will again see the reality of Jesus in his church. I just want to tell you, God has a purpose for us being in exile. And he is at work. And he calls us, as I've often told you, to participate with him in what he is doing. lastly, what do we learn from the text? Well, we who are in exile have to be a people of incredible hope. You see, Daniel and his friends, you know, they they knew the prophecy that after 70 years Israel will be returned to the land. They probably were part of that group of people who walked by Isaiah who was prophesying and Jeremiah prophesied and and it was a known quantity. The, The prophets of God said, this is just part of the story. It's not the whole story. We are here now. We're in this present reality, but it's not the end. I want to tell you they lived in hope and in anticipation of what was going to do. I want to tell you the first century church lived in hope. And as they lived in hope, they changed the world in the knowledge that God's will had to be done in the here and now, but that in, in, in the day to come, God would be honored again in Christ and that God's would, word would be recognized and followed again. It was Paul who wrote that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. They believed it and they knew that, that God was up to something and this was just part of a journey towards something incredibly better. And I want to tell you, the day is coming, my friends, and we know it, don't we, from Scripture? (laughs) That gives us hope in God. It could be because God moves in a powerful way by His Holy Spirit and restores Canada. God could snap His fingers and the exile would end. You know that, don't you? God could move by His Spirit in our land as He's moved in various places of the world in our history and even in the present moment, and He could transform this nation and the belief of its people. And I hope you pray to that end, and I hope you pray that we as a church can be part of that. And that might be the way that the land is restored. It could be that we wait until the second coming of Christ before that happens. I don't know. But what I know is that we are part of the story, what we're experiencing right now. It's not the whole story. And in the end, Christ will be known, and He will be worshipped, and He will be followed. The world will see and know what we see and know. And God... Almighty, Yahweh, will be worshipped again. See, my friends, what I'm suggesting we do is recognize, number one, that we are in exile. The land has changed, and we're left in the midst of something very different. And like Daniel and his friends, we have got to figure out how to live in the land. We have to ask some questions. How are we living now? How are you living now? Are you living as a foreigner? (laughs) Are you living as someone incredibly different than everybody else because of your belief in Jesus? Or the same? You know, how will we live? As people who are faithful to God, obedient to His word in spite of what it might cost us? These four men, each in their own way, had times of great persecution. Will we be faithful to God? Will we as individuals, will we as a church make an impact for God? Will we bless the city and, and so that it prospers? Will we give our heart to blessing this nation of ours and the people in it because God loves them? And they need to see the witness to Christ that I've described to you today in various ways. And lastly, will we live in hope? Will you live in hope? I say to you, do not despair because of the way the world is. God is not done with us yet. God is not done with this world. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to redeem the world and so many of its people. God has a purpose, my friends. As we live in exile, let's learn how to be faithful to God over these next weeks. And let's recognize that God has much to do through us. Let's pray. Gracious God, sometimes it is hard to see what has happened to and is happening to our country. But Lord, we have faith, faith in you, that you are with us, that you have a purpose for us in the midst of exile, that we can be faithful to you and we can fulfill your purpose, even though it might be hard at times, that God, you can use us that the world might see and know the reality of Jesus in a powerful way again. So Lord, we look to you in these weeks to guide us, to direct us, to um, enable us to live um, in a way of, uh, where we face the reality of what is, but to do it with humility and with love and as servants of Jesus. Enable as we pray and allow us as a church to be a powerful witness to Christ In this season of exile in Canada. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.